I always tell the family, but by the time it gets to me, it's usually right before they go over the cliff. Cause I'm literally standing on the cliff going with the net going, okay, we're trying to catch this guy before he goes over. The whole concept for MOVE is M, make a difference. Oh, to offer up your time, talent, and gifts. And B, there's victory in the small things, and E, to encourage others. And so I started to MOVE. Hello, everybody, and thank you again for tuning in to the MOVE podcast. I'm Scotty Carlisle, your host, and today, buckle up and get prepared. This is going to be an interesting one. So today, my guest, Bobby Newman, has some insight and experience in dealing with something that a lot of us have to face at some point in our life, and that is addiction. So Bobby, could you give me a little bit of a backstory on who you are and where you came from? Okay. Uh, yeah, I could definitely do that. I, I came from a very small town in Southern Oklahoma. And when I say small town, a lot of people will tell me small town and they'll say, oh yeah, it only had, you know, 3,500 or 4,500 people. Uh, and I'd say small town when it had 648 people. <laughs> oh, that's another level. Yeah. <laughs> it, was small town. Town. it had it uh, 648 people and about 13 churches. So, um, it, <laughs> uh, so and, you know, I grew up in the, uh, well, it was the 70s and early 80s when I graduated high school, which I'm telling you how old I am, but uh, that's okay. But, you know, when it, drugs, there was there were some people at the time that were using drugs, but not many, but alcohol was pretty prevalent. There were, you know, uh, even, there were a, a bigger majority of kids drinking alcohol, and I got into drinking alcohol. You know, I, I really love sports and loved, you know, football, basketball, you know, went and, and enjoyed some uh, winning seasons my in my high school years and got to go, went on to college to experience college football. So real and, fast, real fast, on Friday nights, was it a thing where everybody, you know, get their six pack and then cruise on Main Street? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. That was a big deal up and down Main Street. I have been... I put about uh, 50 miles on my dad's car one night and I never left town and it's only like a mile square. <laughs> yep. I, I can relate. I can relate. That's funny. So, uh, yeah. So that was, you know, actually uh, claim to fame is the movie Footloose was based off of events that happened in my hometown in 1980. Oh, wow. What What's the hometown again? You, Elmore, Elmore City. City Oklahoma. Elmore City. Yeah. So, you know, and so with that being said, there was a ban on dancing, you know, and, you know, but, you know, but drug use wasn't that prevalent. And I always told my kids that drug education back in those days was if you do drugs, you're going to die or you you do drugs in the late in the early 70s when I was in like grade school and, uh, you know, elementary school that there, there were some kids there was LSD was a big deal. And uh, there were some kids that got into LSD and they and they, you know, they they had done some brain damage and it was very evident. And my parents always said, you know, if you do drugs, you're going to end up like Mark or, you know, uh, or Billy. And, and You're going to think you're an orange for the rest of your life. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so anyway, I, as I was growing up, I mean, again, I was, uh, you know, we enjoyed sports and winning seasons and things like that it was relatively good. And, 
and uh, you know, had no interest in really doing anything. You know, I mean, I did start drinking heavily, and but uh, you know, as I got older, I, I kind of got bored with things, especially towards the end of my senior year when sports was over and kind of coming on to the end of the senior year. And I really didn't know what I was going to do with my life. Wasn't sure if I was going to college or not. I, I did want to go play college ball, but I wasn't quite sure. And, uh, you know, so I got into smoking marijuana. Then I did go play college ball and I got introduced to, I was drinking and smoking weed now. And then I got into, uh, you know, I introduced to amphetamines. And uh, one of my, one of the players who used to bring in a, a prescription drug and in a capsule and, um, I could take that, uh, you know, like we would go out on, you know, college night was Thursday night and we would go out drinking. And so we drinking and then I'd take half of that capsule and I could stay up most of the night. Was that a white cross or what was it? What, what was it called? I don't know. I mean, it was like a capsule. I can remember it was a fairly good size capsule and we, I would always pull it apart and dump some of the powder out and I would take, you know, either drink the powder or, you know, eat the powder or whatever. And I thought, man, I can remember it just making me feel. And then I, the, you know, the next day I would take it before practice, and yeah, uh, football out. practice, and I would be like, man, I said, where'd this stuff come from? And so, get in front of me! Ah! <laughs> <laughs> I was like, well, I wish I'd had this in high school because you just, you know. And then I got to where I was doing that on Thursday and Friday, and then I would do it on Thursday, Friday, and Saturday, and then it just kind of, I went from there, and, and I, it, it gradually, uh, my substance abuse got worse. But I, I still would try to do things. I, I ended up, you know, I, I didn't complete college. I dropped out of college after a year because I really wasn't applying myself. But then I went on into trade school and completed a four-year trade school. And, you know, I ended up, you know, I, I would seem like I would be trying to do well and succeed in life and get where I wanted, but I was still abusing substances. So, you know, you roll that back. And I, and I had my fair share of trouble. I was a pretty rowdy guy and I would get in trouble with, you know, uh, you know, all partying and all that that entailed with, uh, you know, driving. And, you know, sometimes there would be some, you know, fisticuffs and there would be situations that would happen. And, you know, and I didn't consider myself to be a, necessarily a bad person, but I did have, you know, if you looked at me on a piece of paper, it probably would didn't look, you know, uh, that good. But I, 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 I anyway, um, by the time I'm 35 years old, I'm, I'm looking at, uh, I'm, I'm in a lot of trouble. And I was looking at uh, some prison time and I still wasn't, uh, you know, even when I was in, uh, you know, one time in my life, I had four attorneys for four different things in two states. Oh, wow. And that's, uh, then, yeah. Okay. So you definitely did not lead a boring life and especially <laughs> in that, in that yeah. time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was, uh, there was always something going on, always something. And, um, and, and all of that like, basically stemmed from your, from using whatever it was that you were using at the time. Is yeah, that, yeah, it was, is that the know, moral of the story here? Is that where we're... <laughs> yeah, 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 I, 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 I know I gave you a long answer, answer but, but I'm just, I come from a small town, you know, and nobody ever thinks, start, ends up, you know, thinking they're going to end up being a, you know, with a situation like I was in. I was just a kid trying to have fun, like to have fun, and uh, things didn't end up that way, so. Yeah, it's the, uh, I like that quote. It says, easy choices, hard life. Hard choices, easy life, right? So I, I think we all we all experiment and test the limits of our of our situation by by doing that. But so, at what point did you decide to maneuver into the industry where you're like, you know what, I'm going to help people that are dealing with these kind of issues? 
I um, was, I went through a rehab program over 20 years ago and there was a guy that showed up at the center that was doing drug education. And it was a very fun presentation. It was a, basically just told a really fun way of explaining how a person becomes addicted. And, and I was like, man, that's information that most people don't have. There's so like what? What did it do? So give me an example of how that's a fun. I'm, I'm just curious. Well, I, I'll give you an example of how drugs are considered toxins. You know, I never, nobody, obviously drugs are toxic. Right. But nobody ever considers drugs as toxins. And how do the how does the body process those toxins? They don't make the connection. They just think high, cool things I see, but they don't make it the connection as this is a poison or a toxin. That makes sense. Yeah, this is a toxin and this is the way your body processes toxins. So a lot of times people will say just because you do drugs, you're going to be an addict. Well, that's not true. You know, you tell somebody this is what happens and how a person, how it physically affects your body and how your body metabolizes drugs, you know, and it actually, you know, it also burns up nutrients. It burns up specific nutrients, which contribute to depression. And you don't get into all the really heavy, psych, uh, you know, terms, scientific terms. You just keep it really light. You explain to them, you know, your liver and kidneys have to process this toxin. And when it distributes it back into the body to be dispelled through the urine or through, you know, the sweat, some of those toxins actually stay behind and they continue to burn up vitamins. They cause you to feel worse and which causes you to have to take more drugs to feel the same effect. I mean, so anyway, it, it just, it, it breaks it down to where you're like, oh, wow. <laughs> Think of it like that. <laughs> you know, I thought that I would just be able to do this and then I, one day I'd be able to stop and, and uh, you know, as, and some people can, but not very, you know, the percentages of those people are not great so yeah it's the it's a slippery slope and you don't know and and some people definitely have addictive personalities now okay and how long have you been helping people with addiction issues so over 20 years i started out doing uh in in the very beginning of 2001 uh started helping people get out you know i started working and training to be a, a drug education specialist and then I started, so I set up a help to set up a drug education program. And at that time, so I would, my thing was to go out and educate kids. And then it just kind of gradually moved into other, other responsibilities through at, at working at a treatment center. And then I uh, got into where I was doing not only the, the drug education, but I was also doing uh, graduate aftercare. And then I was also doing part of the admissions process. And from there, it led me into being an interventionist because I started working with interventionists at that point. So, so when you say interventionist, I I know that there's a show that came out and intervention and where is, is it something like that or is it different? No, it's pretty similar to that. I mean, that would give somebody a good idea of what an intervention is. That's of course a little bit uh, dramatized for the. You know, it's it's. I wouldn't say that those guys had bad intentions. I actually think that they've shed the light on a lot of things that with families that could be done. People sit back and they have a loved one struggling and they don't know what to do. And that's definitely so. They it shows them that something can be done. But uh, there's certain things as far as um, an interventionist will tweak or do things differently than what they might do on the show that would be a little bit more effective. So, and how how long have you been focused on the intervention part? That's been twenty years. 
I've been doing, the first intervention I did was in 2001, actually uh, later wow. 2001, but I didn't really focus in on interventions until about 2006, you know, and then I started doing, I worked with a lot of interventionists before then, but didn't actually go out and do them myself. So, so give me an example of um, an intervention of, you know, something that comes to mind. Well, like, or maybe a, a yeah, past experience. Yeah, what? Say that again. I'm sorry. Like some kind of past experience, or you know, how it, how it started, and then how it ended up. I have got so many uh, stories. I mean, you know, I just want to mention as uh, an intervention happens in many ways, right? There's going to be, you know, and uh, most of them we don't have any control over, you know, a, a loss of a job, or that's a that's a form of an intervention, of a loss of a job or trouble with your marriage or or DUI or, you know, a possession charge or all those are little things that are trying to stop you from continuing to do the destructive behavior. Nobody really pays any attention to those. A lot of times they'll ignore them and go, oh, well, it was because of this or oh, it was because of that. They never associate it with the actual substance abuse. But an intervention, uh, you know, I've got interventions that there's a there's, there's certain elements of the situation that make an intervention successful. And there's and, and a lot of times families will call me and they'll say, I don't think we can help my son. We try to talk to him. And, and I ask him three questions. I you know, there's three things that make it successful. And sometimes you don't have those three things, right? Sometimes you just have to do the best you can. Like I've gone in and gotten people off the street before that, you know, one kid was in Phoenix that the family hadn't even seen him in two years. Wow. And they didn't, you know, and I, but they knew where he was at. They could, they, they had gotten him a phone and uh they knew what street he was on and he was homeless so i was able to go out there and it took me a couple of days to find him and then it took me a couple more days to convince him to get help but fortunately he had gotten arrested and he was an opiate addict so when he was in jail <laughs> yeah he, you had his undivided attention <laughs> yeah he was like, i he got thrown in jail i was i was i mean i sat out with him and was talking to him and, you know, he broke down and, and, you know, I said, your grandmother sent me out here. She's concerned. She wants you to bring, you know, bring you back and, you know, get you some help. And do you want help? Do you want to change? And he did, he, he did, but he was still, you know, heavily addicted to heroin. I would imagine that's the first one, right? Do they want help? Yeah. Yeah. Three. What other, what other well, things? Well, well, yeah. Do they want to change their life? And two are the threat, like, let's say that you have somebody who just absolutely is just wreaking havoc on, havoc on the family. Right. And uh, and they're, you know, they're, they're refused to get help. And so you have that element of like, let's say as in another example, that the husband has been going to the bar every night and, you know, the wife's home with the kids. And she's like, if you don't stop going to the bar every night, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to leave. I'm, I'm not. This is it. Well, then he keeps going. And, and then she finally gets fed up and packs up her bags and says, you know, I'm out of here. Well, he comes home and he doesn't want to lose his wife. He loves his kids. He wants to keep his family together. So he says, hey. I'll change my ways because he now sees that she means business. So that relationship is going to go away. So it's the threat of a loss of a loved one, right? Like, like kids are going to, you know, the, the, the inherent desire to change doesn't necessarily mean the person is willing to go to rehab. It just means that they don't like their life. They're not happy and they want to change, right? They don't know how. And a lot of times they can't see how rehab is going to go help them. Rehab to in this instance, or actually getting help as an in, as an admission of failure to a lot of people, right? They they can't see it as an opportunity, right? Uh, so, uh, 
but then so you have that one element they want to change two is they the threat of a loss of a of a loved one's affection or love right or or the third thing is what we call environmental pressure meaning those things in the environment that are causing you to have to make a decision to change like for me for instance i was looking at going to prison for a long time and i thought i'm going to take the lesser of the options here and i'm going to go i'm going to go over here <laughs> but i got really close to going but uh i'm not a felon or anything thankfully uh but uh you know it, it did take a lot of pressure to get me to go into to, and that, that pressure a lot of times is not what families are able to do and, you know i mean I'll, I'll give you an example of a girl that i had up, up in uh she was in catskill new york I think that's where anyway uh upstate new york and uh the um you know she had a little seven-year-old girl she was addicted to heroin and the grandmother was raising the little girl and uh you know this girl walks away from her seven-year-old who's begging her you know send her mom a little video we didn't have, of course have the little seven-year-old at the intervention but once she figured out what we were doing she uh she wanted to say something to her mom. She said, mom, I love you. I, you know, I want you to be in my life. Please, you know, I, you know, just the, the, the tearjerker of a video that she made for her mother. And we sent it to the mother and there was no response. And yeah. yeah. And if you can't, for me, if I, if that doesn't motivate somebody to change, then I don't know. The only other thing else is going to motivate, excuse me, motivate them to change is, you know, incarceration, you know, or some really severe, you know, thing. And, um, and so. Well, I, I think it's something to be mentioned that when somebody is addicted, it's basically a reprioritization, reprioritization of, of their life, right? Their, you know, their family or their loved ones or the desire to have good things and nice things is subordinated to the desire for immediate gratification and when you're giving somebody the opportunity you know if you if you frame it that way it just doesn't they don't care so you're it's like somebody's in the market for a a a, um, a motorcycle and you're trying to sell them a toyota a, Toyota Tacoma, you know, they, they just don't care. You can have the nicest Tacoma with the best price and everything, but it's just not connecting. So right. it's, it's interesting. You have to, I guess, threaten the loss of a loved one because, you know, I think that has the strongest bond or connection where, you know, people don't like losing things. The opportunity doesn't, of getting something new or having something better doesn't necessarily motivate somebody as much as the stick, you know, the carrot or the stick. And in people that are addicted, I guess it seems that the carrot doesn't really hold much weight, but the stick has to be a big, strong stick because, um, you know, and, and then you, you start getting into something else because even if they have the threat of a loss of a loved one, they get that loved one, right? And then they're back in the cycle. And then they're like, okay, well, now I have the loved one. Now we're here. Everything's going good again. 
I can do this just a little bit because, you know, just a little bit and they're still going to be here. So I'm not going to lose them. You know, I just just going to dabble and and then boom, now they're back to square zero. And so how often does that happen? It happens a lot. And, you know, the guys will say, oh, well, you can drug test me or you can do this or I'll go do this, you know. And everybody else, and you know, the, 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 the idea is to get them to see that, look, you're asking all these other people to manage your addiction, your addiction. You're asking all these other people to step up to the plate to solve your problem. And they're willing to help you because they're willing to do whatever they need to do to get you to go get help. But you now have to make a commitment to go get help and do this to yourself because you know, you, well, you know, I don't want them to, you know, uh, it's like, it's this weird viewpoint that they can't see, which I, I can look back at when I was in it, I could see how they could see, think that, you know, not to say that they're any different or bad people just because they think this, but we have to shift their viewpoint to the point of um, getting them to see that they are the ones that have to now step up to the plate here. This is a goal. Usually when we do an intervention, we have everything laid out for them. We take every single problem that they may have be facing, like maybe they've got bills to pay, or maybe they have child support, or maybe they've got legal things or, or whatever. We, 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 and I go over that with the family. Okay, well, what are the reasons he's going to tell us that he can't go? Well, he's got to pay his child support, or he's got to pay his house payment, or he's got to pay his rent, or he's got his stuff in his house, or he's got this. Okay, we got to handle all that for him. If we're really going to do this. We have to be, you know, we really have, so... And then the family has to step up. Somebody has to come up with the money for the rent or, or whatever it is. Yeah. They have to be willing to do that is because they, they, uh, you know, we're asking, well, he should take care of that himself. Well, you know, that's going to be, that's a little bit of a tall order because we actually have, uh, you know, we, you know, you're asking a guy to now go to rehab and then plus worry about all these other problems. It's a big deal. We, we've got to take it. And most families will do that. They'll say, you know what, whatever. But we just got it. So we literally, so when they, we do the intervention and they say, oh, I can't go well, um, because of this, this, and this, and, you know, we, we, we usually have most of the things, if not all of them thought out ahead of time and a solution for those things before we ever, they ever tell us, you know, we thought of that bill, bill, we thought of that, you know, glad you said that because we actually have a solution. Your uncle Jake is going to come ah. in, cover yeah. your rent, you know, but it's usually because the family's usually been helping them by the, then anyway. We're going to help you. Go ahead. Well, I finished that because I, I just, well, I had a question regarding, does it ever happen when, let's say, a mom comes to you and says, we need an intervention. But when you look at the scenario, let's say it's a son or a daughter, and they don't really have bad addiction. They have, maybe they do smoke weed. And it's not necessarily affecting their life. Maybe they're very functional in what they do. And you have to look at it and you say, well, I don't know, ma'am. Maybe it's not as bad as you think. Or does that ever happen? Or is it usually by the time it gets to you, it's already so bad that you you have to do, you know, some serious, I guess, maneuvering? Well, no, it's usually by then. But, by the, but I always tell the family, but by the time it gets to me, it's usually right before they go over the cliff because I'm literally standing on the cliff going with the net going, okay, we're trying to catch this guy before he goes over. But my mantra is that it's never too soon to do an intervention. It's always too late. Wow. Right. 
and I'll and I'll give you the my 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 son who's 29 and doing fabulous in life. He just got married, lives in Miami, driving around down there selling insurance and with a sports car, and, you know, doing great. But when he was a teenager, he was started going down the wrong path. I had no evidence of him using drugs at all. I just knew he was making some bad decisions, and I knew how it was going to end up. And his mother and her father and her family were like trying to handle him. And I told him, I said, I got some solutions, but you know, they wanted to try to figure it out their way, which I, I don't blame them. You know, they had you know, their, their solutions weren't bad. It just weren't working. And um, so they finally turned it over to me, but we did an intervention on the kid and, and, and found out later after he went to a rehab program that he had been using, but it was more about getting his life back. Not, not about drugs. It was just about, you know, a refocusing where he wanted to go with his life. And it was the greatest thing that ever happened to him because, it, but he, he, he admitted later, he said he had used drugs maybe six times over about an 18 month period, which, you know, I mean, it's not nothing to be sneezed at, but at the same time, it's not like he's sticking a needle in his arm every day. So, but he was really making some bad decisions. And so we did an intervention on him. And so, uh, but it was, it saved us. I mean, it could, that probably could have went on 10 years and been, he was headed for incarceration. He just was. And so I thought I'm going to save everybody some trouble, including him. And he was able to get it squared away and go back and finish high school, enjoy his high school football, you know, sophomore, junior, senior year, you know, and went on to college. And uh, had we not done that, those years would have been wasted. So, Well, let me ask you when it comes to situations, I would imagine one of your biggest challenges is the concept of avoidance. You know, I'm not addicted. I don't have a problem. This is fine. I can handle this. No, my life, you know, and you look back from an objective seat and you say, wow, man, that's messed up. That's messed up. That's me That's not good. Yeah, yeah. Dude, you do have a problem. How, how do you address avoidance? And what is your concept of avoidance? Um, nobody ever thinks my concept, I, I look back and I, I told you about those times when in my life I had the four attorneys for four different things. Yeah, yeah. I would have told you then I don't have a substance. Use. I, I would have told you then. No, I, I got this. I, no, no big deal. I, at the time I could have stopped using drugs long enough to, uh, pass a drug test if I needed to, if I knew one was coming, you know, or if I had for work or probation or whatever. Uh, so I would have told you that. And it was insane. I look back at that time in my life and I'm like, <laughs> it was obvious. I had a huge problem, you know, but, um, you know, what, as far as talking to people, my, uh, I used to go in in the beginning and I would go in and try, they'd say, uh, they'd try to downplay or minimize their substance abuse. And I would say, you know, and I would try to really focus in on, this is how bad it is. But I, I've learned through watching others and things that it's just better to say, you know what? Yeah. Well, why do we want to wait? Oh, I'm not as bad as they always compare it to the guy out on the streets and shooting, you know, homeless and living under a bridge that's, you know, doing 10 bags of heroin a day or 15 or whatever. And uh, I'm like, yeah, well, well, we don't want it to get to that point. That's why we're doing this now. But yeah, I understand you're, you're right. You're not as bad as those guys, but why do we want to wait? Oh, I can stop at any time. Well, you just OD three weeks ago. 
<laughs> you know, mm-hmm. I did an intervention on a guy that was uh, over in Colorado just two weeks, well, 10 days ago. And he's going into rehab today, by the way. But um, he, uh, he, um, you know, he has a job. He has his own house. He's got equity in his house. He's got cash in the bank, you know, but he's got a huge, he had on three different types of prescription drugs. Plus he was getting fentanyl off the street, you know, and, uh, and so I just got, he went in there and told his mother, he said, you know, can you go up there and clean up my room a little bit? So she, she comes over to visit us and she's in, in town from Atlanta and uh, she goes in there and finds 50, 50 pills, fentanyl pills in his nightstand. And I'm like, dude, I said, come on. I said, that's a glaring sign right there that you need some help. Either A, you wanted your mom to find them or you're so out of touch that you forgot that they were in there, which is another. Yeah. <laughs> indicator that you know. And, and, he, and he, he, I said, you're a smart guy. I mean, I'm not going to, you know, you're, you're smart enough to figure this out. So, you know, and, and uh, anyway, he, he agreed. He, he had finally, after about a day, he said, you know what? You're right. You know, there's no sense. And, I said, you know, it's, it, especially addicted to opiates like you are. I mean, why make it harder on yourself to say, oh, I'm going to do this on your own when opiates are physically the hardest drug to come off of on your own? So why not go in somewhere and get some help? And he said, he said, uh, you know, he agreed. And he said, it, which I never do, which is not a good idea when they say, oh, I'll go next week. I, <laughs> never do today what can be put off till tomorrow man. <laughs> exactly Especially with, but but he's actually going in today so he's one of the rare moments of uh, it being a success but he was smart enough to realize that it was and, and, and we were able to do a good job of seeing it uh, getting him to see that this is an opportunity so okay now and and how I see that, I think that's great, and it's on the road to recovery, right? So, and the road to recovery is not a one stoplight journey. You know, I I have experienced basically all growing up. So my dad had fell off a three and a half story building. He was twenty two, and he was a avid sports guy. He was a boxer. He was a runner. He was a fighter. He did all this active stuff and he was in construction fell off a three and a half story building said he would never walk again on crutches you know lots of pain i had an artificial hip crushed his spleen broke a bunch of bones and completely changed his life now not only were there physiological impediments in every corner of his life but also psychological because now You've taken away my manhood. I can't be a man because men do this. And now I can't. So therefore, I am not a man. Plus, ah, you know, and you have people that are dealing with these kind of scenarios. And they talk to their doctor and their doctor's like, you know, there's not a lot we can do, but we can take away the pain with this introduce opiates or introduce whatever the hell else they have. And that becomes an addiction, not only to take away the pain, but also to take away the thoughts, (laughs) the numbness, the, you know, because that's very, it bites, you know, it's very, it's very uh, clear. It's very, you know, pungent. There's, it's, it's hard. And so, you have somebody that 
has been taking prescription drugs and they say, oh shit, you know, I've realized now I'm taking three when I should only be taking one and I'm doing it five times a day instead of twice. And that's probably not good. And I'm a little bit uh, lethargic and I don't have energy. And, you know, then we have the wife and then the, the jobs and all of these things start to compound and they say, oh man, this sucks. So, but my question is they, now they're going to rehab. Okay. So that's the first step, I think, on the road to recovery. How do you deal with scenarios where somebody is in physical pain and they have some way of, of reducing that pain? How do you deal with them? How, how do you help them not fall back? Because it's like their whole life is on the edge. They're not like, you know, when, when somebody is notices that they are addicted and they say, you know what, I'm not doing that cocaine anymore. They can cut off the ties, they can separate themselves, and they can come back into the dry land. But when you have people that are dealing with these these type of scenarios and they're prescribed, they, they don't have that luxury. They have to literally stay on the edge. And how do you have a way of dealing with those people, helping them? Well, education is the key. And it definitely, those are like, there's a lot of folks that come through, you know, they start taking drugs to handle some sort of problem, right? A physical problem, such as your dad, or mental emotional trauma that they've experienced, you know? Um, and those drugs are the solution to that problem. And then they, they themselves become the problem. And particularly when it comes to that type of thing with opiates, you know, some things that I've learned over the years, which I didn't know, is that you know drugs opiates will actually cause pain because it reduces your pain threshold because you're getting yeah i totally agree well there there's a re yeah and it, it, and you've always been and the more a person takes the more it numbs them out and then you know it actually causes and there's something a lot of people don't know is that uh, you know at the towards the end of your nerves you know where they communicate with each other the nerves uh, um, endings it causes swelling inflammation it's called gliopathy right and it causes this swelling so when you stop taking the drug the drug the cessation of the drug stops and it so it stops the numbness that's created by the by the drug right but that swelling is still there so the pain is worse than it normally would be interesting so and there's also opiates burn up doesn't mean that there's not legitimate pain. That does not mean, you know, people that have been injured have, could have legitimate pain, but they also have, you know, an addict. There's a couple of other things that they don't bother to tell people that I, that I know of. Maybe they do and I don't know it, but, you know, an addict will have a usually terrible diet and they crave a lot of sugar, right? So not only do you have the drug itself causing inflammation, you have usually taken the ingestion of a lot of sugar that, because the body craves it. And that's also an inflammatory, right? And they're also not doing the things that, or they may not be doing the things that are required to actually reduce inflammation as far as some sort of physical therapy or whatever, right? So there's a number of things that could be going on behind the scenes that are contributing to the problem that people may not be aware of to where they could then go off of the, the hardcore, you know, uh, opiates or the painkillers, right? So that would be one thing. And um, 
but but then you have to actually solve if there's a, a a constant pain problem that's a signal that there's something wrong so i would be uh, you know still you know you're i mean i i'm you know, I, I still live in, you know, I like to be active and stuff and I still live, in, you know, there's certain discomforts that I have just being older that I don't like, but, you know, I still, um, you know, I, I have to just deal with it and kind of grip my teeth and, and go on. But that doesn't mean that, you know, like let's say somebody like, again, like, uh, you know, like your dad had injury, it's, but there could be things that it could be done that weren't so, uh, uh, you know, wouldn't would reduce the pain to the point of where he wouldn't require that type of uh, medical care, you know, from, from a drug. Well, what I found is that he would come to a realization of, Oh shit, I don't like this. What's going on with my life. And he would say, you know what? I'm going to stop. I'm going to, I'm going to do, I'm only going to take what I need to only when I have pain. Right. And so it's like, we're all bipolar. And the person that is sober, that has clarity, even though they're experiencing pain, can look and see and make judgments and say, okay, you know what, I, this is what I need to do and I can see that. Yeah. But the problem comes in, not at that point. The problem comes in after they've taken the one pill, right? Now that they're just getting the one dose, I'm not gonna take too much, I'm only gonna take one. And then at that point, they're, judgment starts to get a little bit more cloudy they're more open to um you know whims they're yeah i guess at that point and then it's like you know what screw it i'm gonna take another one or i and so so in essence when you're dealing with somebody that is sober and you're doing an intervention everything that you say could make a hundred percent sense to that person and they are a hundred percent on board and it's gonna happen but that's not the person that you have to be talking to. You have to be talking to the one that is a little high because that's the person that's going to make the bad choice, uh, you know, in those yeah, situations. Yeah. yeah, 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 you're right. I mean, it, 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 and it, that's, that uh, goes on, you know, one of the things that I do, I try to do with everybody is uh, explain to them that it's not when you're tempted or if you're tempted, it's when you're tempted because you've parked, you move everything away from you that's going to, you know, like going into a, a program, it's going to reduce your chances of relapse because you now have moved those temptations away. As soon as you move out of that protected environment, those temptations are going to come swarming in, even unintentionally. And, you know, you have to be prepared mentally to figure out uh, with a plan on how you're going to handle it. And for me, you know, the way it worked for me, it was I had just decided, I said, I'm done. I mean, I had a point, I was in there almost four months because I, I had probation that was about the same length of time. And I, so I wasn't in any hurry. I was like, I'm just going to park it here till my probation's over. And yeah. so I wasn't in any hurry, but, and, but I was there probably two months before I had that epiphany of like, I'm done. I am not going back. I, 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 I turned the corner and I was like, I looked back and I was like, I'm never going back there in my mind. I knew. And so when those things inadvertently came at me, uh, opportunities to drink, I mean, I, I was flying to see my sister after I just got, got out of rehab and had a layover in, in uh, St. Louis and an ice storm came in. So it grounded the plane. So I had to stay in a hotel that night. My sister puts me up in a hotel 
puts me on a black diamond, some sort of credit card that unlimited expense. And of course they ushered me right into the bar and grill when I got there. And I'm, I'm like, no, you've got free access to the bar. And I'm like, I just want a cheeseburger. And uh, <laughs> I, I, I went to this, my sister, I called her up. I said, thanks for the free access to the bar. And it's uh, you know, anyway, she got mad. And she said, I told them not to do that. I'm like, yeah, well, they're, you know, but that would could have been my first. I was, yeah. I'm just like trying to get to visit my family. And, and, you know, here I am being ushered into full access to, you know, a bar, uh, you know, you can have whatever you like. <laughs> you can go to the shower. We got it all right here. And uh, but I was, but I was done. I was like, I don't want, you know. Um, and then, you know, I had a, as soon as I got back home, within two, I had an old girlfriend show up, and you know, she's still out using it. And so those things happen. But I, I was just like, oh, no, I, I didn't even have a plan. I just, but for me, I had decided I'm done. I'm not going back to that life. So, so anything that comes along that's a threat to that or would cause me to do that, I'm, yeah, I'm stiff arming, you know, I'm giving it the Heisman trophy, you know, uh, move, but, uh, but a lot of people don't prepare for that. They don't. I heard somebody talking about, I don't know if it was talking about addiction or, you know, bad choices. And they were, they were explaining it as somebody that's holding a snake and once the awareness gets to a certain level and you realize that you're holding a snake and you see it and how and you understand that it's going to bite you and that's poison you're going to throw it away you're going to throw it away as far away from you as possible but as long as you're not fully aware of how it can bite you and the poison you'll continue to hold it and you'll do whatever it is and so i feel like addiction is is holding the snake and it's us you know, whether it's by use of avoidance or I, I don't know what other um, defensiveness or whatever, it's like our mind tricks us into believing that that snake isn't going to bite us. And so I feel like what your job is, is to get the the person to the level of awareness where it's like they for themselves understand that this snake is going to bite so they can throw it away and just like you once you understood and once you had the awareness and it was at the level where you're like whoa then it was like right away it wasn't a I have to go to therapy it was like I'm done and and I feel like that happens a lot even like people that smoke cigarettes they try the nicotine patch and then they try to stop smoking this is so much and then but Everybody I personally know that has actually quit smoking, it hasn't been from a nicotine patch. It hasn't been from a prescription. It hasn't been from limiting themselves. You know what it's from? Them saying, I'm done, and they throw it away. And I've seen people 30 years and cold turkey, and they have are still not smoking. And so I don't know. That, I No, that is so true. That That is, that is 100% true. And sometimes there's a little preparation or, you know, getting a person up to that point, because there's no way in this for me. And I always look at it. This is what it was for me, what it's going to be for you or somebody else. I, that's not for me to decide. That's, that's, you know, that's going to be your situation. You know, that's you doing it, not me. I can, I can say this, you know, and, and I, I get into this thing where people go, Oh, well, this is what you need to do. This is what you should do about, 
No. You know, I, I, I all I could do is maybe give you some things that you can then use that maybe help yourself get in a better position because the truth is it's a hundred percent you doing whatever, you know, however this turns out, it's a hundred percent you, you know, it, it's not, I can help you, but it's going to be you, you know? And so, but uh, you know, I go along with um, the fact that we're getting a person up to that decision, right. Where they, they can then make that decision is a little bit of a process because there's no way I would have been able to make that decision had I not been forced into a scenario that caused me to kind of improve things, just kind of change things where I was continually improve, then I could go, oh yeah, okay. So that's like, it's like this big duh, like, <laughs> no <laughs> like what the, like it's almost you pulled your head out for a minute. You're looking, oh, okay. <laughs> now I see. But yeah, I mean, look at that as a snake until you realize what you expect. It's a snake, you're holding a snake. You know, so why would you be surprised that it bit you? It's a snake. Wow. <laughs> you know, that's what the snakes do. <laughs> so very true. So so then that leads me to the next kind of level where you have pharmaceutical companies that are producing and they know full damn well the side effects, just like the smoking companies, you know, they they understand. And then there's a certain period of time where they're like, no, we don't, this doesn't hurt you. And then, and then they already knew. And then it's like, they found out that we knew. And, and so, well, okay, I guess there's some issues, you know, but until then we're going to make as much money as possible. And I, and I feel like there's a lot of prescription drugs that are pushed by pharmaceutical companies through the doctors, yeah. writing the scripts. And at what point, are they supposed to be held liable for doing what they're doing? And, and is it ever going to happen because they own all of the, the politicians? And so we don't have any way of fighting that, I guess. Or how have you come across situations where you've seen it could have been mitigated had a pharmaceutical company had a little bit maybe not push their product so much or a doctor that was could have you know uh not prescribed that is there do you come across well, that often yeah well, i mean constantly it's it's the biggest problem i mean they you know purdue pharma have you heard of that situation purdue pharma where they sacra family they no. they were the sac purdue pharma or is the one that came out with oxycontin Oh, right, 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 right. Six Purdue Pharma, they, they've got, well, they're out of business. They're out they, because, because they have a class action lawsuit going on right now with, um, well, maybe it was been determined, the, 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 anyway, but they were false advertising, misleading, you know, and they had a whole machine going on. I mean, there's a lot of document, documentaries out there. Um, you know, I've got a book right here called, uh, called Pharma. Wow, that's a big book. It, it, this this is like this is a guy who's like, yeah, it's called Pharma, and I would if you to answer your question, read that book, <laughs> and it's all about the misleading um, practices of people that are you know uh, they're basically legal drug dealers. That's what they are. Now, some people have integrity. Some people have uh, you know um, like I, I when I was in I had knee surgery in nineteen. Uh, Actually, same 1993, and I went in and I had uh, 
some uh, bone spurs taken off my knee. Ouch. And, uh, it, you know, I was in a cast from my mid thigh all the way down to my ankle. I was going to be in it for six weeks. And the doctor gave me three days supply of Wartab. <laughs> wow. He said, no, you come back in three days and I'll give you three more days. But so I went back in three days and I uh, asked for three more days. And I said, no, I don't understand. This is kind of sadistic that you're not giving me like, I'm going to be in this cast for six weeks. He said, I am not going to be responsible for your, he was the orthopedic surgeon for the OU Oklahoma university football team. So, you know, he was used to dealing with people wow. and he said, I'm not going to be responsible for your pain pill addiction. Hey, you know what? That's, that's an interesting way of, of doing that. I haven't, I haven't heard of doctors doing it that way, but what a great idea. Well, you know, and I look back at that and I, and he looks at me and he's not a very big guy. He's a small guy, but he's like, he's, he said, I know you think you're a tough guy. So, you, you know, you're just gonna have to uh, tough it out, dude. And uh, <laughs> I was like, that's the tough love you don't want to hear though. <laughs> <laughs> I was mad at him. I thought, man, that's, uh, I called him all kinds of names, but then I looked back and I thought, man, that's, that was an awesome thing that he did because I didn't really have a, a you know, uh, a desire for pain pills anyway. I mean, I like to go the other way, but, mm -hmm. uh, more methamphetamine, like get pumped yeah, up and yeah, yeah, yeah. get the heart rate up. But, um, you know, he, but I also, I look back at that moment. I wasn't doing anything that he's told me to do either. Stay off of it. Don't drink a lot, take a lot of sugar, you know, you know, do this, do this, do this. And so the swelling wouldn't be so bad. I wasn't doing any of that. I was drinking alcohol. I was running around, you know, on it all the time. I was causing the pain to be worse because I wasn't following the doctor's orders. So, mm -hmm. so here I was wanting him to give me drugs and, and then I, but also at the same time, wasn't doing what I was supposed to be doing to reduce the pain. So, you know, I'm thinking that's just a classic example of, you know, my, me, myself doing this the very thing that I see people doing now. And, and, it, and it's usually from an ed educated, a lot of people that I deal with are, they just don't know, you know, you know, so anyway. Hmm. So, and then you've touched on fentanyl. You've mentioned that a couple of times. And I know right now that's a big issue in our homeland. And yeah. how often are you seeing that compared to heroin compared to coke compared to meth compared to molly compared you know all of the smorgasbord of of Drug. recreational drugs i say it's pretty common i mean it's it's you know especially if they're buying pills off the street uh you know they they've got the fit pills now that look exactly like they came from a pharmaceutical company that are coming off the street they're coming from the labs in mexico you know, so I, matter of fact, the kid in uh, Colorado that uh, he, he, his mother caught him with the, they, you know, with the 50 pills and they, they looked at him and, and, you know, took his mom took a picture of him and they, so they looked him up online and yes, they were le legitimate forms of the pill, but they, all, oh, by the way, we're also finding these from, <laughs> that's coming from Mexico. And, and they're getting cut in it and that cut in it. Yeah. There's this fentanyl in it. So, um, yeah, it's pretty prevalent. It's out there. You know, it's, it's, you know, they're, and they're putting it in, they're putting it in cocaine. So, you know, the likelihood you're, you're, you know, going to be exposed to it if you're buying drugs off the street, which, you know, even if you're buying them not off the street, you're still, there's a high chance you're going to be exposed. They're putting fentanyl in cocaine? 
Yeah, they're doing. A, it, it, I don't even understand that. I don't. I don't guess it's for the numbing effect or something. I, I don't know. So, but uh, it, it's uh, you know. So I, I don't understand it. But uh, um, it's uh, you know. I've been told that it's happening. Would you say that overall, as a society, that we have more people addicted now, or than, or back then? Do you think it's getting progressively worse, or do you think we're getting better? It's progressively getting worse. I mean, it, it is. I mean, it's not getting better. I mean, and it, especially with you know, and I, I'm not going to get into the argument over marijuana, but um, you know, people talk about marijuana being a gateway drug, and, or you know, there's all kinds of arguments about marijuana, and and I, you know, I and I can throw in with people as far as uh you know it not being as bad as alcohol maybe or but i, I wouldn't use alcohol as a as an argument because alcohol kills about a half million pe people a year <laughs> so, yeah, right. so that was should be a grow oh, well it's not as well, good as i'm glad it's not as bad as alcohol so, <laughs> but, <laughs> but uh so I, I i would say that you know people need to be better educated about what drugs do and how they affect the body because particularly i've seen more kids today that are smoking weed are only testing positive for weed. I should, I'm going to say yeah. that. And they're literally going psychotic. I'm not joking. I mean, going into psych wards and be, it, and it's because of either a, the potency of the marijuana or of the THC or the chemicals that are sprayed on it, or they could possibly be mixing it with synthetics. And people would might argue with me that, uh, Oh, well, you know, it's probably they're mixed it with synthetics. I don't have any evidence that they're not. When you say synthetics, what do you mean? Like spice or K2 or something of that nature, the stuff that's coming from China that they can, you know, they, they've got, they make it, it's, it's supposed to be a synthetic marijuana. Um, so different spice type drugs. That's what I, I mean by synthetics. Um, but I don't, uh, you know, um, the thing of it is, is that the potency in marijuana when I used to smoke it uh, was about 3%. And upon occasion, I, I, been, I wasn't testing it. There was a couple of times that I smoked it that it really kind of took me out there. You know, I was yeah. like, you're out there, you're like, you know, and I accused a friend of mine of, of spraying something on it, you know, uh, putting, um, oh, they called it wet at the time. I don't know if it was, anyway. Um, but anyway, I accused a friend of mine and he denies it. Years later, he denied it. I, I hit him up with that. I said, remember that time? And you know, then he said, yeah, I don't remember doing anything like that because, uh, but today's potency of marijuana is so like, particularly when they're pulling the, uh, they have a thing they call, they do called shatter, which they pull the THC out of the plant and they make it into an oil. And it's like 95 to 90, maybe even hundred percent THC, you know, and they oh, wow. make it into an oil and, they, and they're smoking it. It's so you know, THC wow. is, yeah, it's a psychoactive drug, meaning psycho meaning affects the brain, active meaning it's going to affect the brain. So when you have, you go from 3% to now, you know, at least when you buy it out of these dispensaries, I think it's probably a 35 to 40% pure if you're smoking it. You know, the, the oil is about almost 100% pure THC. Wow. So it's going to be, and there was a professor years ago that I have a friend of mine that worked for the DEA out in California. And he, had a friend that was a professor that said, if the, if the, if the THC levels continue to go up as they are, you're going to see people going psychotic on marijuana. You know, okay. So my personal experience, I have a hard time sleeping and I went to one of these dispensaries and I was talking to them about, um, 
I can't sleep, help me, you know, CBD or whatever, is there something? And, and the guy was saying, actually, we have something perfect for you. We have this oil, it's THC. So exactly, I think what you're talking about. I don't know the efficacy of it, pretty, yeah. pretty sure it's up there. But he yeah. said, okay, and I was telling him, I don't have a problem going to sleep. It's when I wake up at two, three o'clock in the morning and then my mind starts going and then I can't go back to sleep. He said, well, if you try this oil, <laughs> put a couple drops in your, you know, under your tongue or whatever it is, and it'll probably take about 45 minutes to take effect. In the meantime, you can fall asleep, but then you're asleep and that's when it's going to get you, right? Because, and then it'll kind of put you in a not necessarily comatose, but you know this state, and and you won't wake up. And I was like, you know what? I'll try it. I'll try it because I'm trying to do anything I can to get better sleep. Yeah. So I took it, fell asleep, nothing. I woke up. I think it was like two o'clock in the morning. It could have been two thirty. I'm not sure. And. There it goes. And then I realized that I had taken that stuff on top of it. And so not only was I in my normal zone, but now it was in a in a place in my mind where I couldn't I couldn't control what what I was what was happening to me. And then I started freaking out a little bit. I got paranoid and then that led to going, okay, I got to get up and like, I got to move. So I, I got up and I'm walking back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. And my mind, I just, you know, I was jumping to these negative thoughts and I couldn't stop it. And then it was just progressing like to the worst negative thought to a worse negative thought. And, and so, and it got to a point where my wife woke up and she's like, are you okay? And I'm like, uh, no, I'm not okay. I'm not okay. And then, you know, it, it was a really bad scenario. Yeah. And so for me, I'm very sensitive to that, I guess. And so uh, psychoactive, holy crap. Like it was very psychoactive for me and in not a good way. Not everybody has that same effect, but it was like that for me. So I can't, I can't do that. And I can see how over time, if people are ingesting too much of it, that that you would have some side effects. Now, I'm sure everybody's different, but that could be that could be a concern, a concern. Yeah, I mean, I I I don't want to, you know, I have friends of mine or people I went to high school with that, you know, they're it's so funny Oklahoma just passed, I live in Kansas City now, but uh, you know, Oklahoma just passed the uh, medical marijuana. And I think those guys I, and I'm I'm from I'm born and bred Oak Oakey. Right, right. Uh -huh. those guys are like going nuts down there. They're they've gone crazy. They've lost their they've lost their damn mind. I mean, there's a <laughs> there's a dispensary on literally every corner. I mean, it's like and there's more. I think there's more dispensaries in Oklahoma than there are in Colorado. Wow, like, and Colorado's been doing it for a while. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, don't, I don't. Well, I, I okay, I can I can tell you, I think I have an educated guess on why that is. Because you have people that have gotten to the dispensary business over here and then they're looking for other opportunities, right? And so when somebody, a new thing pops up on the map, you don't just have the people that live there. You have the people that have been in the business over here going over there as well. So I could, that would make sense. That, that is true. Definitely true. And uh, 
my dad, which is from, still lives right there in the little town of where I grew up, and my and my sister, they they're Chinese, are buying up land around there like crazy, start growing wheat, and yeah. so I don't know what all is to that, but yeah, you're right, people are you know that are already had their setup, their situate, they're you know are moving to the new opportunity to cover you know to yeah. cover more area, and um, and then but you know and then more and more people are coming out of the woodwork that. No, <laughs> showing up at the Baptist church and they're, oh, I got my card. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, but see, here's the thing. That's still marijuana. <laughs> you know, but here's the thing. When you're looking at the pharmaceutical companies, right, that are producing this and they're, you know, they have all the side effects because you're, when you're ingesting that and you have the, um, you know, the I can't remember. So every time you take a pill, you, there's um there's a portion of that pill that just kills your liver. I can't remember what I'm. My mind's blanking out on me right now. But um, but there are, there are bad things associated with taking a lot of prescription drugs. And then you have people that are taking those prescription drugs and taking seven different prescription drugs to alleviate the issues that they're having. And then they try to start doing some cannabis or, you know, uh, some smoking some weed. And for whatever reason, that alleviates those issues. And it's like, well, do I want to take these prescription drugs that are legal? Now, me understanding legal, what I think is they're legal because the pharmaceutical companies own the legislators. Because they're the ones that are giving them the campaign funds. And it's only legal because they've written it into law, given it to the legislators that owe them because of their campaign donations. And that's why it's legal. It's not because of any other reason. And so I'm looking at it like, okay, this person could be taking, you know, all these prescription drugs and then having all of those bad side effects or not. And now they smoke a doobie and they like some ice cream. <laughs> so to me, I think it's, you know, but, but again, it's the, the moderation and the excess is bad for anyone. So where, where do you draw the line and how do you draw the line? I don't know. Well, that, that's a great, I mean, you know, my, my, uh, step, uh, my, my, my wife's stepdad just got diagnosed with stage four cancer mm. and he's going to, he's going, and they, they, for per, her, my mother-in-law, they think there's a pretty good chance of recovery, but I don't know if I were him. That I wouldn't be firing one up. <laughs> yeah. You know, it'd be in a lot of pain. I I, I don't know that I, I I wouldn't say to him, Terry, don't don't you know don't I'd be like maybe you should go down there to the dispensary <laughs> and, and talk to those guys down there. I mean, because you don't want your loved ones in, uh, you know. But you look at it like there there is a line that you know. I have a friend, another that's a nurse, and she didn't believe this was about I don't know six or seven years ago i was quite surprised by this because i had been in hawaii for years and then i moved back to oklahoma and um i was posting something on facebook about the pharmaceutical you know the opiate pain the crisis that's going on and you know and i was given statistics on you know facebook and she comes on and she's kind of contesting me about because she works with uh, uh terminally ill patients that are, you know, got cancer or whatever, that, yeah. you know, they're, they're, and she's having to dispense these meds. And so turn, she's giving them out the Oxycontin and the things that, you know, 
people are dying from. And so I had to point out article after article all over the country. I just said, you know, oh, by the way, here's an article from New York. Here's one from, from uh, California. Here's one from Florida. Here's one from more. I basically pulled articles from that talked about the problem from all over the country and put them on there. And I said, look, I, and then she says, well, what do I tell these people that are terminally ill? I mean, and I said, you know, to be honest with you, I'd probably just give them their medication. And it, it wouldn't even, because what are you going to do for these guys? You know, I mean, it's good. But at the same time, I had a friend of mine that's, uh, you know, to kind of answer your question here, I had a friend of mine that I, when I lived with, he was in the military. He was a recruiter for the military. And on the weekends, he would tie one on, boy. He, he was my neighbor. And he would tie, he'd have barbecue and, and friends over and he would get to want to play cards. And he was from up back East up in New Jersey, uh, Philadelphia area. And, um, Anyway, he, he would just, but, you know, they had a little girl, a little three or four year old girl. The wife would stay sober. He would definitely have too much to drink. <laughs> but, and he asked me one time, he said, do you think I have a, you know, he knew I was a counselor and I didn't, I would go over there and hang out with him, but I didn't drink it, but uh, we'd go over and have fun. And then, uh, but, um, you know, he asked me, he said, do you think I have a, 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 an alcohol problem? I said, well, would you put, you know, your wife and your kids and your career and everything else that matters in this hand, and you put the alcohol in this hand, and you choose the alcohol, then guess what? You know, there's a problem. Yeah. You know, if you're doing, and, and that, that line could be crossed, you know, most people cross the line, and they don't know the line's been crossed. That particular guy just bought a house up in the Poconos, you know, his, his summer, he's retired now from, he went, he got out of the military, he's in there for 20 years, he went to be a, uh, went on to get his master's degree, and then he went on, now he's got a house in the Poconos, so we like to tell People, you know, we got a friends that have a house, you know, a second, house, a summer home in the Poconos, but, uh, but he was definitely career oriented. He definitely was all about his family, you know, so for him, those were the most important things. The alcohol was not, you know, it was, you know, he liked to drink, but it wasn't the most important thing. And so when, when those things become the most important thing over everything else, and that's when, you know, you really got to step back. And, and again, that, that line gets crossed. You know, and usually it's miles behind you before you realize, wait a minute, <laughs> I've crossed the line. So, that so, slippery slope, you're already sliding in when you when yeah, you realize yeah, it. Exactly. So. so what about when it comes to psychedelics? I know that there are a lot of research studies that have linked um, LSD um, as a as a mode, as a successful modal therapy for people that have depression. And instead of taking Zoloft and, you know, a lot of different prescription drugs, they've, as a everyday thing, they've used psilocybin and they've used LSD and they've used different psychedelics and have had people come out of you know recovery or or basically are I, I guess I don't know if healed is the right word fixed <laughs> just with one or two treatments as opposed to you know have, have you come across any situations of that I've heard of it and I I you know and this is what I always tell people look if people are dialing my number things aren't well right so I only hear about the cases that didn't go well you know, I don't, so, you know what I mean? So I, it's a little bit like a skewed, 
you know, I'm not, people aren't, oh yeah, they're not going to call me up to tell me, oh yeah, I, I, you know, um, but they may call me and say, well, he went to this one program and they put him into a coma for three days and then he did this certain drug and then he, but, but, you know, and that, and that lasted for about 18 months. Right. Okay. Well, that's great. I said, so, but where are we at now? You know, where is it at now? You know, we want to do, put something together. So I can't, you know, I would never tell somebody if that's what worked for you, that you shouldn't do it. Right. I, I, I don't, I particularly from a physiological standpoint, I could see where it wouldn't work, but I'm not, I, I'm not here to get it. I wouldn't get into an argument with somebody. At, I just wouldn't do that. You know, I mean, I, I, if they're able to lead a saner lifestyle, you know, I, I, I do what I do because I want to make it as safe as possible for my family and for other people's families, you know, where I can worry less about if I'm driving down the road, whether I'm going to get hit by somebody high on drugs or, 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 or whatever. I mean, so if I can make it saner, then that's what I'm after. So I'm not going to argue with somebody about, you know, the ineffectiveness of that, you know, I, I don't have any, I, would, I don't, and particularly, I don't have any science, something that says, you know, differently in front of me. So, but I can tell you that from that type of thing, just to give you somebody, something to think about. I know a lot of people have been hypnotized from, you know, and, and taking those type of drugs is a form of, it's a form of hypnotism. It's a chemical type of hypnotism. If you could, you, you know, you, you can see what I'm saying. I mean, you're yeah. you're leaving the conscious state, and then entering in suggestions that would influence your ability. You know, like people have been hypnotized to stop smoking cigarettes. Now, I'm not a fan of hypnotism at all because I firmly believe that you can enter in something good in there, but you can also enter in something bad. Yeah, not on purpose. <laughs> not on purpose right so it's just like in high school when we had a hypnotist come to our school and they would you know they, they hypnotized the, the girl and said now you're going to go out in the audience and when i say this word you're going to jump up and yell scream a, a thing and we're all thinking yeah whatever and then he you know we for actually for i forgot all about it the girl goes back out in the audience and then about uh, towards the end of the presentation he says the word and she jumps up and screams the <laughs> and everybody's laughing at her it was like embarrassing for her she wouldn't have done that uh willingly i mean she wasn't that type of person yeah. so i'm thinking in my mind well that was that a good thing or a bad thing i mean yeah we all got a kick out of it but those type of things entered into you know so i think you get the idea so you know, i got hypnotized one time at this bar and uh ended up taking my shirt off put a wig on and I was sitting on somebody's lap. It was bad. so now these are not things I would normally do now, <laughs> yeah. but I was having fun and I was, you're, when you're in that state, you are open to suggestions. And, you know, I look back and I think uh, there's a picture floating around of me in a wig and, you know, singing. I was, I was uh, like some kind of singer or something. I don't, I don't know, but probably pretty damn embarrassing. Um, but it just goes to to enforce that point of when you know the the power of suggestion is pretty damn powerful. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It, I would have, uh, you know, you look at there's chemical, you know, you 
you know, the people that do things are, well, I, I, I would call it tequila <laughs> back in the day. <laughs> we used to say good old tequila. It puts dents in your car and knots on your head. <laughs> <laughs> That's so, funny. Come home and I got all these knots on my head. I got dents in my car. Oh, yeah, I was drinking tequila last night. <laughs> How'd that happen? <laughs> so so, it, so you're out in Kansas City. Yeah. Got it. Okay. That's so it's a couple hours past the time over. So we're in California. You're two hours later over there. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Well, yeah. I, I don't want to take too much more of your time up, but I think that we had a very productive conversation. I think you have a lot of insight. I think I would like to sit down with you again and talk more about specific stories of interventions. Cause I bet that'd be some real colorful content. <laughs> I've got a few. I've got actually quite a few that I that are very uh um I don't know people I have a friend of mine that says you've got to start writing these things down and you've got to you've got to you know you've got to write a book and you've got to tell these stories and um um you know I've had you know I, I, I I want, I, I want to tell you a story real quick, a success story about a guy that was, he was a first generation. I, I, I don't know if it's uh, uh, just me or, you know, I guess a lot of people, but I've had the, the pleasure of working with a lot of first generation immigrants into our country. Like I'm talking from all like Cambodia, from Vietnam, from Korea to, you know, uh, India, uh, Lebanon, Israel, uh, one of the, the prettiest young women I've ever seen in my life was from Iran, right? A Persian. Persian? Was like, you know, the girl that goes around, you know, in the, in the um, Aladdin cart, you know, movie. Oh, yeah. that, 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 <laughs> so I was 22 years old, but, you know, I'm a happily married guy, so don't get any wrong ideas. But, um, you know, I'm just saying that and then this uh, Iraq, I have a family from Iraq, uh, um, uh, Czechoslovakia, Russia. Um, Ukraine. Uh, it just, and, and there's similarities amongst all these people. They're very hardworking. I'm not, you know, I, they're, these are first generation immigrants that are here, you know, they're working hard. They're, they're citizens. Well, they got here somehow. I'm sure it wasn't easy. They probably had to, just the fact they're here speaks volumes. Yeah. They, they come from their situation to another country and they're working. And, uh, but anyway, this particular family was from Iraq. And this guy had been to rehab like three times and I walk into his room and he's got, you can't take a step in his room without stepping on a syringe. Oh, wow. it is. And it was kind of like, you know, we're in there and his mother, his mother was a single mom and which is another common factor that I see a lot. And, you know, this is her baby, her, her youngest son and he's got a problem. The oldest boy was, you know, successful, hardworking guy, had a job, you know, supporting his family and this guy, Anyway, we went in. It took us about a day, but uh, you know, we, I, we were in there, and I was talking to him. And he finally got up to my face, and he says, "Look, if I go to rehab," he said, "and I come out and I OD, it's gonna because he always would OD when he'd come out of rehab." And I said, okay. "And he's like, if I OD and I die, it's, blood is gonna be on your hands." <laughs> and I said, "Dude, I said, let me just let you in on a secret." I said, uh, "You go to rehab, and you come out, you put a needle in your arm, and you OD, and you die." that's your fault. It's not going to be mine. I'm trying to get you to live. So don't, you know, don't, you're not trying to put that, you know, there was a lot of profanity in there, but 
you're not putting that on me. I'm trying to get you to live. And I just walked out the door and he, he was standing there with his mouth open. Like nobody had ever shoved it in his face like that. You know, you keep putting it off on like it's your mom and it's your brother and this and that. I mean, no, we're not doing, but he actually completed, we took him into a program. We got his agreement to go. And he and I flew all night across the country and he went into a program was there for a little over, you know, he, it was a place that he liked to be right. He, it was a nice place. And, uh, his mother sent me a text about two weeks ago, said he'd been sober for six months. His first time in his life that she could remember that he'd been sober for six months. So, um, you know, and it, but he was, you know, I thought he had, he, this guy had, uh, his legs were, he was shooting up in his legs and, and it was just like constant sores. I mean, he had bandages from his knees down to his ankles and they were just soaked. He had to change his bandages every two or three hours because they would soak with, you know, the, you know, it just wasn't a pretty scene, but it was bad. And that's how bad he was. And, uh, but he, he got, we got him sober and he was, you know, over the hump and, and happy. So, you know, and there's a lot of stories like that, but that one was one I was particularly proud of because, you know, he, there was not a lot of what we call leverage in the intervention industry. You have leverage over somebody. You like, it's it'd be like consequences of them saying no. Like if, if you refuse to get help, then, you know, we're going to pull all support or we're going to have you evicted from the house or we're going to have some sort of leverage over you to get you to, you know, what we call that pressure to get them to go. There wasn't a lot there. Uh, so, but, you know, he agreed, you know, he, he definitely wanted to change and he did make the change. So, but he, I have a lot of other very funny stories and, and uh, interesting stories, but uh, definitely like to talk to you again, for sure. Cool. Well, so I think the overarching message of this podcast is that if you're out there, if you think you're struggling with addiction, you think it's possible Help is out there, but at the end of the day, it's on you. It's on yeah. you. You have to take personal responsibility. If you do not take personal responsibility, it's only going to get worse. And if you say that you don't have a problem, maybe you don't have a problem. But take a step outside of yourself and look at your situation. And if your priority comes down to taking a drug or doing a thing as opposed to something that is beneficial and will help you, then that is a chief indicator that you have a problem. And if you can see that and make that connection, help is out there. Help in the form of Bobby Newman. Bobby, how would somebody come out? Would they come out to you and visit you in person? Would they call you? Is it an email? What contact information do you have? I have, you could call me at, uh, my number is 866-989-4499. I have people that answer my hotline. Uh, the girl that, a lot of the girl that answers my hotline actually got me into rehab over 20 years ago. So we've been doing this a long time. Wow. Work. Yeah. And she's got her own very interesting story. She's quite the character, but she definitely is very good at helping people. Um, and then um, you can cut, my website is newmaninterventions.com. At N-E-W-M-A-N interventions with an S.com, newmaninterventions.com. You can go there. There's a lot of information on um, how to interventions there. Uh, I also have um, um, newmaninterventions.com 
forward slash 25 successful intervention tips. Okay. So it's, and I can send in 25 successful intervention tips. You can, there's a form on there. You can fill that out. You can download 25 tips for a successful intervention. It's a free doc, uh, you know, and it's designed for families to learn if they have a loved one to learn more about what it takes to do an intervention on someone. Right. And you basically prepare everything before you ever get in front of the person you have, you have a lot of preparation that goes in before you ever pre present talking to someone about their problem and trying to do so. You have, you have, it, you have it laid out to a d the degree that all you have to do is get them to say yes. And then everything else is handled, you know, and, and, and so you can download that off my website and then, or give us a call. We'll be glad to help you any way that we can. So how about Facebook or Instagram or Twitter? Do you do any of those social media? I'm on all of that. You know, I mean, if you just put in Newman Intervention Services, you're going to, I'm going to come up on Google and not, you're going to come up on uh, Facebook. So I like yeah. the fact that your last name is Newman. <laughs> A lot of people have said that. They're like, Newman. <laughs> A new man. So, so if you have a problem and you want to be a new man, then call Mr. New Man. <laughs> Bobby, uh, you're awesome. Thank you so much for your time, for your talent, for your information and insight. And until the next time, for all of you boys and girls out there in podcast land, thank you again from the bottom of my heart and tuning in. And we'll see you around the corner.